I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. For our best subscription offers, visit lrb.me forward slash pod. The one border we cross so often and with such well-rehearsed reflexes that we barely notice it is the threshold of our own home. We open the front door, we close the front door. It's the most basic geographical habit. And yet one lifetime is not enough to recount all our comings and goings across this boundary. What threshold rites did you perform before you left home? Did you appease any household deities or leave a lamp burning in your tabernacle? Did you do the quick pat-down of pockets or bags to check you had the necessary equipment for the journey? Or take a final check in the hall mirror to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet? You don't have a slave to guard your door as the ancients did, so you set the alarm or you set the dog. Keys? Yes, they're in your hand. You have the power of the keys, the right of possession that connects you to thousands of years of legal history, to the rights of sovereigns and states, to the gates of salvation and damnation. You open the door, step through, and turn to close it. Through its diminishing arc, the details of your life inside recede. On one side, me and my place, writes the novelist Georges Perec. The private, the domestic, a space overfilled with my possessions, my bed, my carpet, my table, my typewriter, my books. On the other side, other people, the world, the public, politics. You can't simply let yourself slide from one into the other, can't pass from one to the other, neither in one direction nor in the other. You have to have the password, have to cross the threshold, have to show your credentials, have to communicate with the world outside. You lock the door. You've crossed the border. You've ignored the Latin proverb and Pascal's warning that all humanity's misery derives from not being able to sit alone in a quiet room. When the Savoyard aristocrat Xavier de Maistre was sentenced to six weeks' house arrest for duelling in 1790, he turned his detention into a grand imaginary voyage. My room is situated on the 45th degree of latitude, he records, in a journey around my room. It stretches from east to west. It forms a long rectangle, 36 paces in perimeter if you hug the wall. And so he sets off, charting a course from his desk towards a painting hung in a corner. And from there he continues obliquely towards the door, but his way laid by his armchair, which he sits in for a while, poking the fire, daydreaming. Then he bestirs himself again, presses north towards his bed, the place where for one half of our life we forget the sorrows of the other half. And so on, from the expedition of the Argonauts to the assembly of of notables, from the lowest depths of hell to the last fixed star beyond the Milky Way, to the confines of the universe, to the gates of chaos. This, he declares, is the vast terrain which I wander across in every direction at leisure. Whether around your room in 40 days, or around the world in 80 days, or around the circle line in 80 minutes, 
whether still or still moving. The self is an act of cartography, and every life a study of borders. The moment of conception is a barrier surpassed, birth a boundary crossed. Gunter Grass's Oscar, the mettlesome hero of the tin drum, narrates in real time his troubling passage through the birth canal and his desire, once delivered into the world, to reverse the process. The room is cold, a moth beats against the naked light bulb, but it's too late. The midwife has already cut the cord. Despite this uncommon ability to report live on his own birth, even Oscar's power of self-agency is subject to the one inalienable rule, that there's only one way into this life and one way out of it. Everything that happens in between, all the thresholds we cross and recross, all the decisions and revisions that a minute will reverse, is bordered by this unbiddable truth. What we hope for is safe passage between these two fixed boundaries, to be able to make something of the experience of being alive before we are required to stop being alive. There's no negotiating birth or death. What we have is the journey. On the evening of the 3rd of October, 2013, a boat carrying more than 500 Eritreans and Somalis foundered just off the tiny island of Lampedusa. In the darkness... Hello, Carmen. (laughs) In the darkness, locals mistook the desperate cries for help for the sound of seagulls. The boat sank within minutes, but survivors were in the water for five hours, some of them clinging to the bodies of their dead companions as floats. Many of the 368 people who drowned never made it off the capsizing boat and were dragged to the seafloor still on board. Among the 108 people trapped inside the bow was an Eritrean woman, thought to be about 20 years old, who had given birth as she, as she drowned. Her waters had broken in the water. Rescue divers found the dead infant, still attached by the umbilical cord, in her leggings. The longest journey is also the shortest journey. Already in the womb, our brains are laying down neural pathways that will determine how we perceive the world and our place in it. Cognitive mapping is the way we mobilise a definition of who we are, and borders are the way we protect this definition. All borders, the lines and symbols on a map, the fretwork of walls and fences on the ground, and the often complex enmeshments by which we organise our lives, are explanations of identity. We construct borders literally and figuratively to fortify our sense of who we are, and we cross them in search of who we might become. They're philosophies of space, credibility contests, latitudes of neurosis, signatures to the social contract, soothing containments, scars. And they're also death zones, portals to the underworld where explanations of identity are foreclosed. The boat that sank half a mile from Lampedusa had entered Italian territorial waters, crossing the imaginary line drawn in the wobbling sea, the impossible line, if you think about it. It had gained the common European border only to encounter its own vanishing point, the point at which its human cargo simply dropped off the map. Ne plus ultra, nothing lies beyond. I have no theory, no grand narrative to explain how we're brought to a scenario in which so many people are clambering into their own hearses before they're actually dead. 
I don't understand the mechanisms by which globalisation, with all its hype of mobility and the collapse of distance and terrain, has instead delivered a world of barricades and partition, in which entire populations seem to be living and dying in a different history to mine. All I know is that a woman who believed in the future drowned while giving birth, and we have no idea who she was. And it's this, her lack of known identity, which places us, who are fat with it, in direct, if hopelessly unequal, relationship to her. Every one of us here in this room is, or, or rather has, a verified self. That is, an identity formed through and confirmed by identification that is attested to be true. You can't function in the world without it. You can't open a bank account, get a credit card or national insurance number or driving licence or access to your email and social media accounts or a passport or visa or points on your reward card. You can't have your tonsils removed without it. You can't die without it. Whether you're conscious of it or not, whether you like it or not, the verified self is the governing calculus of your life, the spectrum on which you as an individual are plotted from cradle to grave. As the political theorist Pierre-Joseph Proudhon explained, you must be noted, registered, enumerated, accounted for, stamped, measured, classified, audited, patented, licensed, authorised, endorsed, reprimanded, prevented, reformed, rectified and corrected in every operation, every transaction, every movement. Now, Proudhon, who wrote this in 1851, was the first person to style himself an anarchist, so naturally he blamed the state for everything. And I think this makes his Jeremiah insufficient for today, um, as I suspect it was in his time, because it presents us as passive victims of this overdetermined onslaught of verification, rather than hyperactive participants. We are, as Terry Eagleton put it in the pages of the London Review of Books, a fanatically voluntaristic society, obsessed with public self-exposure and suspicious of reticence or obliquity. Yes, we all have what Milan Kundera calls the epidermal instinct to defend one's personal life. Never mind the front door, back door, garage door, car door and the petrol cap, or the safe, or the desk drawer containing your life insurance policy. Just think of how many other locks you use every day, all day, on your computer, your phone, Facebook, Amazon, bank account, credit card, all those memorable dates and memorable digits and memorable passwords and memorable answers to memorable questions that we store in some special key room inside our brain. But then think about the vast amount of detailed personal information you are releasing into the atmosphere all the time, even as you sit here. You can't see it, but there's an endless belch of digital exhaust coming out of the smartphones in your pockets. If you've got an Apple Watch or Fitbit bracelet, it's coming off your wrist. Even when idle, these devices are sending and receiving hundreds of thousands of communications to and from servers across the globe, independently of you, but using your identity. It's not identity theft, because you've consented to it by dint of the numberless pages of small print you've ne neglected to read. It's your, identity being, it's your identity being trafficked and traded, with your permission, by interested parties about whom you know nothing and if any of your devices has geolocation technology and you haven't turned it off, you're now transmitting your exact location to God knows who or what, silently bip, bip, bipping like a little Sputnik. 
Perhaps you used a registered Oyster card to get here this evening? If so, your journey will have been tracked through a microchip embedded in the card, a tiny electronic system known as RFID, or Radio Frequency Identification, which contains your data in the form of a unique code, who you are, how much credit you have, and even the number of the credit card you use to pay for it. This chip has a miniature antenna, which, when activated, sends and receives information to and from an external database via the reader in the gate. You don't actually need the card at all. It's just a convenient casing for the chip. Once the reader confirms your identity, the separation barrier opens to let you through. Another border crossed, another layer of identity fat acquired. These integrated chips or circuits are everywhere, the invisible key of all identity verification. There's one in your credit cards, probably in your car keys, your phone, your work ID, an entry card, your driving licence. If you're a criminal out on licence, or a registered asylum seeker outside a detention centre, or a newborn baby in some hospitals, there's one in your ankle tag. If you're a dog, there's one in your ear. Human microchip implants are not yet widely available, but I found a web-based company called, with admirable frankness, Dangerous Things, which sells a sterile injection assembly kit. Should you be interested, it's currently reduced from $57 to $39. This kit enables you to push a chip encased in a cylindrical, biocompatible glass casing through your skin, your epidermal border, and once lodged there, it will engage in a lively conversation with your computer or other smart devices and do all sorts of things for you, like open the car door or turn the heating on or tell your doctor you're having a heart attack. Implantable GPS-enabled chips are still theoretical, but could make it possible for a person to be located by latitude, longitude, altitude, speed and direction of movement. Useful if you've been kidnapped in the Western Sahara or if you're lost in the car park at the Westfield Shopping Centre. <laughs> Useful, too, if you're tracking migrants. As I've said, identity is established by identification, and identification is established by documenting and fixing the socially significant and codifiable information that confirms who you are. This process is called biometrics, literally life measurement, and its purpose is to reformulate identity as collectible, readable, exploitable data. So in other words, you're a database from which some sort of content is extracted or captured and then algorithmically encrypted and stored for retrieval in a much larger database. And biometrics include personal information, behavioural traits and unique physiological characteristics such as DNA, blood group, fingerprints, facial geometry, iris features, and dorsal vein patterns, which are the veins in your hand. In Proudhon's day, the manufacturers of the verified self were still paper-based, and it's worth noting that it was the mass production of paper in the 15th century that revolutionised the keeping of records. It's a case of function follows form. So just as later the skyscraper followed the invention of the elevator, so the great chancelleries of the world were built on paper. But today, although we're still afflicted by endless paper forms, uh, the constant production and maintenance of biometric data is principally driven by the kind of smart technologies I've been describing. Uh, the fulcrum of which, of the, digita the digitally, digitally verified self, is the electronic passport. And here it is, 
the little book of me. Um, that's got the symbol there for the e-chip, which is on the inside cover. And at the moment, it's not transmitting any data because it has no power source of its own. It's asleep. But it wakes up when it enters the electromagnetic field of the reader in, installed in smart border control systems. Once it's powered up, the chip identifies itself by sending a unique identifier to the reader, and when this is accepted, it transmits its content using a digital signature to confirm the authenticity of that data. So it's a double lock system to prevent your passport being, uh, the data on the chip being hacked or cloned uh, by somebody else. Currently, the data on, on my chip as a British passport holder is the same as that on the front inside page of the passport. So it's first name, family name, date of birth, sex, nationality, serial number, issuing state, and expiry date. So effectively, a coupling of me with the authority of the state who confirms that this is me. Uh, and it also contains a digital copy of the photograph I submitted along with my original application. Ah, oh, the passport photo. <laughs> the court with no appeal... The one likeness guaranteed to show you how you never want to look. <laughs> Paul Fussell called it the most egregious little modernism, redolent of the world of Prufrock and Kafka and Malone. And indeed, every time my photo is scrutinised by a passport officer, it's as if I've entered that same world of anxiety and disassociation. As Stefan Zweig put it, I cease to feel as if I quite belong to myself. I split off from my bureaucratic double... And the passport officer weighs me through, and I lurch at the insult. You really believe that's me? <laughs> well, yes, they know it's me. Because the digital copy of my photograph in the microchip is a JPEG that can be enlarged, can be enlarged to a far higher definition than the little cutout on the passport. This means that my unique facial geometry can be accurately read by automated facial identification software that traces the precise distance between my eyes, nose, mouth and ears. And this is why we're not allowed to smile when we sit for the photograph. Smiling was banned in 2004, along with frowning or raising eyebrows, because the software treats the face as a blank somatic surface, scraped clean, exfoliated, of all affective expression, in order to be differentiated from other faces. It's a search for fixed mar markers not a full cartographic survey. Passports, in one form or another, are as old as the hills they allow us to pass, but their use was far from systematic until the First World War. Before then, Zweig tells us, one embarked and alighted without questioning or being questioned, and frontiers were nothing but symbolic lines which one crossed with as little thought as one crosses the meridian of Greenwich. Zweig himself travelled from Europe to India and America without ever having possessed or seen a passport. Come the war, he continues, nationalism emerged to agitate the world, and the first visible phenomenon which this intellectual epidemic of our century brought about was xenophobia, morbid dislike of the foreigner, or at least fear of the foreigner. The world was on the defensive against strangers. Everywhere they got short shrift. The humiliations which had once been devised with criminals alone in mind were now imposed upon the traveller before and during every journey. There had to be photographs from right and left, in profile and full face. One's hair had to be cropped sufficiently to make the ears visible. Fingerprints were taken, at first only the thumb, but later all ten fingers. Furthermore, 
Certificates of health, of vaccination, police certificates of good standing had to be shown. Letters of recommendation were required. Invitations to visit a country had to be produced. They asked for the addresses of relatives, for moral and financial guarantees, questionnaires, questionnaires, and forms in triplicate and quadruplicate needed to be filled out. And if only one of this sheaf of papers was missing, one was lost. Zweig's relationship to the passport was famously troubled. He suffered every rubber stamp as a stigma every interview with a border official as a humiliation. But for others, it did exactly what it said on the cover. It opened a door onto the world. Having a British passport, Naomi Mitchison trolled, made her feel like the spiritual heir of all the milords who are having the grand commercial past swaggered over the continent. Well, there are still plenty of milords swaggering. Um, And although I haven't been able to confirm this, I think that the UK passport is the only one to include hereditary... Um, or honorary titles as part of the verified self. And I've got a copy somewhere, I think I've left it over there, um, of the government's guidance on the correct use of titles in passport, and it is actually hilarious. Uh, For example, issuing officers must know that the daughter of a baron or life peer, I quote, if unmarried, is known as on, followed by her first name and surname. But if she's married to a knight or baronet, she's on lady, followed by her surname. And if she's married to a commoner, she's just on Mrs, followed by her surname. (laughs) Honestly, there are pages and pages of this you and non-you, posher than posh tosh. (laughs) Um, And the guidance also states uh, that a title of nobility should always be checked against the entry either in Debrett's Peerage, the latest edition of Who's Who, or the appropriate edition of the London Gazette. If in doubt, passport officials are advised to refer to a line manager who presumably has received some advanced training on the subject from Nancy Mitford. (laughs) The British passport itself is still a swaggering thing, with a power of open sesame that places it first in the world, shared with Germany, for visa-free travel, currently to 173 countries and territories. The Eritrean passport, by contrast, offers visa-free access to just 34 countries, ranking it 104th, tied with Nepal and the Palestinian territory. Somalia, with only 30 countries, claims the third lowest rank, just above Iraq and Afghanistan. These bottom liners are unofficially classified as what the French sometimes call the petit pays de merde, the shitty little countries. And most of the visa-free travel on offer to them is to other shitty little countries. To visit the UK, they need a visa. Uh, Now, Home Office annual figures for UK visitor visas, as opposed to long-stay or work visas, um, issued to Eritreans or Somalians, Somali, sorry, are not published. But it's safe to conjecture that they're very low, probably in the the low hundreds. We're first-class citizens. They're 104th and 107th-class citizens, respectively, which is why they take the smuggler's boat of which the ticket, by the way, is considerably more expensive than a flight to Heathrow from Asmara or Mogadishu. The visa from the French visé, having been seen, is another key document of the verified self. Without it, those Eritreans and Somalis on the boat heading for Lampedusa were invisible, unseen, well before they disappeared into the water. And I suspect most of them didn't possess passports either, They belong to the new mobile population known as the sans-papier, the undocumented. And there are several reasons for this, 
including the fact that people fleeing failed or repressive states for asylum elsewhere tend not to advertise the fact beforehand by walking into a government passport office. Hence the role of people smugglers in the scramble from Africa. And they might have learned a thing or two from the scramble for Africa, which generated the biggest people trafficking operations in history. Like the passport, the visa has a long history, but its usage has been substantially reinforced in the 9-11, in the post-9-11 context, which has seen the whole policy discourse on border control leap from its former status of low politics to the high politics of security. This radical shift in the policing of territorial access is most evident in the United States and the European Union, whose cherished liberal principles of openness and mobility, whereby the limits of geography are not the limits of our lives, are now being walled in behind a policy of exclusion. This is the liberalism of possession, defended by ever-thickening borders, sharply rising enforcement budgets, new and more invasive surveillance technologies, and other mechanisms of exclusion of which stricter visa regimes are one powerful example. Where the visa used to be a stamp in the passport or a separate document, it's now the polished artefact of the post-9-11 smart border, complete with its own embedded chip. The majority of passport applications do not involve being seen, unless you're unlucky enough to be called in for an identity interview, as it's called, by the UK Border Force. Um, the state accepts instead the testimony, of, the testimony of a respectable member of the community that you are who you say you are. But the visa application involves you presenting your embodied self alongside your textual or digital self. Many of you here will have stories to tell of lengthy pleadings at the always seedy consular office. In 1919, Ezra Pound was held up in Paris for hours by an American official who doubted his bona fides, and he was still fulminating about this delay over folder rolls eight years later. Today, although you still have to be seen, you can offload some of the botheration by paying an agency to deal with your application. The Russian embassy in London has outsourced its visa section to a company called VFS, and if you're Q-averse, you can pay a little extra to loll about in the comfort and privacy, I quote, of its premium lounge service at its centre near the Barbican. If drinks and snacks and a free complimentary Russian phrasebook aren't sufficient enticement, you can pay a bit more for the portable bio-kit service, whereby, I quote, a team of experienced officers can come to your home or office to check your visa application documents and collect your fingerprints. You've got, you've got to be joking. <laughs> the visa application form is a, form, is, a, is a genre unto itself, and it's an object lesson in miniature of the borderline personality disorder of the nation-state. It's here that its deepest fears are laid bare alongside its delusions of grandeur. You could write the history of the modern world through the visa form, but I've limited, I've limited myself to a very superficial survey, although it's sufficient to suggest a direction of travel, namely that global inequality, global inequality can be measured through a comparative study of these forms. For example, if you're trying to visit any of the Premier League countries, you have to answer scads of questions. But if they're bottom of the table or relegated countries, it's a much thinner process. Rich countries with expensive IT-driven border systems can afford to embed biometrics, including fingerprints, in the visa. Poor countries are still at the rubber stamp level of technology. 
Rich countries use the international language of visas, English, fluently. Poor countries don't. Rich countries can afford to turn down visa applications. Poor countries can't. Anyway, here are a few specifics or distinguishing features from the current visa forms that I've looked at. And they're visitor visa forms, mostly. Um, Pakistan asks you to supply an identification mark and state your blood group, religion and history of military service. Burma, a biometrically poor country, relies on a self-description. You must state the colour of your hair and eyes, your height and your complexion. I think we're gentle crimson at this point. Um, the Democratic Republic of Congo asks that you, supply, that you supply evidence of good moral character and confirmation that your host in the DRC is a physical or moral person. Japan is particularly interested to know if you use marijuana, opium or stimulants. Papua New Guinea, which offers special visas to yachts persons, comedians and gospel groups, requires a good health certificate, chest x-ray, HIV test result and statement of good character from your local police authorities. China asks if you have a serious mental disorder or infectious pulmonary tuberculosis. Saudi visas are at the invitation of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. You must state your religion and agree to respect Islamic traditions, including the ban on alcohol or drugs, contravention of which, warns the form, is punishable, punishable by the death penalty on Chop Chop Square. Oh, no, but I added the location. <laughs> the Solomon Islands caution that all declarations on their visa form must be true in both substance and in fact. Just about every country wants to know if you've been involved in prostitution or the sex trade, except for Thailand. <laughs> Russia's visitor visa form asks you to list every country you've been to in the past 10 years. But so does the UK form, which at 12 pages is a real potboiler. Its principal fascination is with how much money you have, income, stocks, shares, and how you spend it. But it also wants to know if you glorify or justify terrorism, if you are generally of good moral character, and whether you have any spent or unspent convictions, including traffic offences. And finally, the big daddy, the peak of the moral high ground that is the US visa form. This encompasses forced sterilisation, prostitution, communicable disease, polygamy, moral turpitude, espionage, torture, terrible practice which, as we all know, is scorned by the US... And terrorism, physical or rhetorical. And yes, the question about membership of the Communist Party is still there. Now, we've all marvelled at the logic of asking a torturer or a terrorist to volunteer the fact. Indeed, the idea that any of us is still treated as a trustworthy witness to ourselves in this age of surveillance seems weirdly anachronistic. But the tick-box confessional is less mystifying than it seems. The authorities know that self-incrimination is utterly improbable, but what they're looking for is a fast track for deportation in the event that you have made a false confession. In other words, you don't get kicked out for being a terrorist, but for lying about it on your visa form. Now, this makes the visa a much more powerful instrument of exclusion than the passport, which in theory at least offers some protection. The visa is also a more intrusive contrivance because it's concerned not only with identity, but with intentionality, with the Cartesian principle that what really matters is going on inside your head. Gone are the days when we can puncture the seriousness of all this, as the British journalist Gilbert Harding did by writing Sole Purpose of Visit, next to the question, do you intend to overthrow by force the government of the United States? 
This is the age of extremely bossy borders, and you don't mess with the rules or their enforcers. You trawl out your spent driving convictions, the ones you believe really were spent. You enclose your chest X-ray and all the other folder rolls, and then you sign your confession. It's a sober affair. Unless you're using the Mexican visa form that ends with the invitation to please sing in the box... That's my personal favourite. This one jubilant opportunity accepted. (laughs) To cross a border legally is now a long, drawn-out act of obedience, a hushed processional from consular office to immigration desk and all the intermediary stations. At the airport, we advance with the miniature steps of geisha girls towards the apparatus that sees, sees into, scans and filters us. We yield to verbal instructions issued in what W.H. Auden described as the peremptory tone reserved for children one cannot trust who might be tempted by ponds or learn, something disgust- or learn some disgusting trick from a ragamuffin. We remove our jacket, shoes, belt and hold aloft our cosmetic secrets in a see-through plastic bag. Without protest, we shuffle in our socks towards the pat-down or into the machine that sees through our clothes without us having to take them off. And yes, they do see everything, which is why they're known in the industry as porno scanners. This behaviour is so removed from the normal circumstances of our lives, bar a medical examination, that it can only be viewed as an act of submission. And indeed, border crossing points, especially at airports, are carefully designed to induce this disciplinary state, shaping traveller flows much the same way as the principle of the IKEA store layout, um, so that you're aggregated and separated and have no options but to toe the line. We submit because we believe it makes us safe, that a picture of our genitals is a fair trade for a safe flight. But as independent security researcher Evan Booth has established, it's possible for terrorists to, be, to build lethal weapons using only items for sale at the shops beyond the security checkpoints. Booth himself has designed and built an arsenal of fully functioning weapons from such retail items, including a fragmentary grenade, which he calls the Frappuccino, that he made out of a coffee tumbler in less than eight minutes. Apparently, the spikes from the crown of those miniature eight-inch Statue of Liberty um, make very good shrapnel. Booth's website, Terminal Cornucopia, you can see him, uh, the video of him firing a breech-loading shotgun made from a deodorant aerosol cans of Red Bull, 9-volt batteries, tape, dental floss, tinfoil, a hairdryer, a fridge magnet clip, and a condom. (laughs) The aim of his low-tech experiments is not to wage war on a plane, but to expose the security rigmarole as a hugely expensive piece of theatre staged by high-tech boyos cashing in on fear. Smart borders are a bull market for these professionals of unease, who were the first to see, beyond the smoking rubble of the World Trade Center, a new frontier opening up. As the then US Transportation Secretary Norman Minetta warned the Senate Appropriations Committee, we've got every salesman, 20,000 of them, I think, approaching us about how they've got some machine that will take care of everything we do, including not only detecting explosives, but athletes' foot as well. Every Cracker Barrel Sage and Soapbox Booster turned up for the party. Let me tell you about Paul Ekman. He's a psychologist, professor emeritus at the University of California and founder of the Emotional Intelligence Academy. 
In 2009, Time magazine ranked him one of the most influential 100 people. When he began his research in the 1960s, he said to himself, I quote, I've got to unpack the face. It's a goldmine of information that everyone has ignored. So he created what he calls an atlas of emotions with more than 10,000 facial expressions, some of which are so tiny that they only last one twenty-fifth of a second. If you can learn to spot these micro-expressions, you can become a human lie detector, Ekman claims. Because, and I quote again, when people are being deceptive, they leak the truth, and you can be trained to see and hear this leakage. Ekman uses his facial action coding system to train border officials and other security enforcers to read and understand what others are thinking and feeling from information they, go, they give off. And so the verified self becomes a perpetual confession in which your body and mind are testifying for you without you even realising it. There you are, trying to look innocent, and all the while your stream of consciousness is quietly pooling at the feet of Ekman's truth professionals. This is Klondike gold, and to date the US government has invested over a billion dollars trying to get hold of it through an Ekman-inspired program called Screening Passengers by Observation Techniques, or SPOT. SPOT has been rolled out in all major US airports, I think in fact in a third of all of uh, this airports in the United States, including the much smaller ones. And uh, its, its secrets are kept quite, quite closely, but a document leaked in March 2015 uh, revealed that it works on a point system. So too much yawning, add one point. That's my brother. I've got you there. Whistling. Whistling as you approach the screening process, another point. A cold stare, arrogance, rigid posture, all get two points. Fidgeting, one point. That's my other brother. Uh, also on the checklist, wobbling Adam's apple, excessive throat clearing, exaggerated or repetitive grooming gestures, wearing improper attire for your location. And if your score climbs to six or higher out of possible 92, the spot-trained behavioural detection officer, I'm not making this up, will pull you out of the security line for closer inspection. And I, other than the wobbling Adam's apple, I am I'm definitely on the naughty step for all those points, mostly the improper attire for location. I'm not the only one to detect a whiff of snake oil in all this. Giving testimony, giving testimony to a congressional hearing in 2011, Ekman claimed that border officials trained in his methods were up to 50 times more effective than their untrained colleagues at spotting high-risk passengers. This contradicted an earlier independent report which concluded that people, including professional lie catchers with extensive experience of assessing veracity, would achieve similar hit rates if they flipped a coin. Two years ago, the US Government Accountability Office agreed there was no scientific evidence to support the programme and recommended that the funding be limited until the Transport Security Administration, the TSA, could prove its usefulness. The review is still underway. The first TSA officer to be killed ever to be killed in the line of duty was, you guessed it, a behaviour detection officer. Gerardo Hernandez was shot on the 1st of November 2013 in Los Angeles International Airport. And I wonder, was he so focused on his assailant's micro-expressions that he didn't see the gun in his hand? 
Or were the shooter's facial actions strange islands in Ekman's atlas as yet unknown and unmapped? Or is the incident simply a desolate example of the folly of Ekman's claim to have developed a scientific method for the detection or inference of future behaviour? According to a recent investigation conducted by undercover teams from the Department of Homeland Security, no less, officers trained in Ekman's techniques failed to spot weapons and explosives in 95% of instances. It's official. It doesn't make you safer. One more thing about Ekman. He claimed in an interview that the first time he saw Bill Clinton during the 1992 Democratic primaries, he detected a hand-in-the-cookie-jar expression. So he contacted someone on Clinton's communications staff and said, look, Clinton's got this way of rolling his eyes along with a certain expression, and what it conveys is, I'm a bad boy. I don't think that's a good thing. I could teach him how not to do that in two or three hours. Well, evidently, Clinton failed to take up the offer. But Ekman's boast that he can use the same technique of discovering a lie to covering one up saves me from having to develop any further critique of the flaws in his multi-million dollar enterprise. So the spot programme may yet be stood down in its current form, but the theory behind it will not. Ekman's so-called science of facial coding is now the gold standard system of post-9-11 face-of-terror security solutions. Automated facial expression analysis, heat cameras that detect blush responses around the eyes during deception, sensors that track pupil dilation, and even a machine called the Automated Virtual Agent for Truth Assessments in Real Time. These and other devices all target the face as Ekman's dynamic field of classifiable information about the individual. They don't just measure you. They're geared to unlocking the emotional, affective truth of you and binding it into information networks. It all reminds me of L. Ron Hubbard's hilariously misdescribed Church of Scientology, whose members undergo mental auditing with a confessor who uses an electro-psychometer to detect and record minute changes in electrical resistance through the body. Scientologists claim this e-meter allows auditors to, quote, see a thought. John Travolta swears by it. Well, call me awkward, but I don't want to be audited by John Travolta or any other policeman of the soul. And I'm sorry, but as I shuffle towards the immigration desk after the plane has landed, I don't feel grateful for the final act of examination that awaits me, with all its sophisticated accoutrements of social sorting, digital discrimination, and algorithms to separate friend from foe, verified from unverified. Here we are in the brightly lit arrivals hall. The better to see you with, my dear. The in-between space of two worlds, the sterile testing zone. Stand behind the line. The border tells us where we stand, and there we stand until we're summoned forward to complete the liturgical procedure with an agent of God sitting in a glass lectern. Questions are asked. We believe we're answering truthfully, but what do we know? The self has its own internal borders and secret corridors, full of dark things we have yet to acknowledge as our own. Anyway, who are you to ask? Don't go down that route, because your involuntary tick or tremor will alert them to your rebellious thoughts. Everything about this situation is designed to oppose a moral challenge to the traveller. And in fact, the one time I queried this disciplinary state, 
very politely or so I thought, at US immigration, I owned myself a big stamp in my passport which read in uppercase, paroled. Uh, and I had to find a judge to review my case or risk being de- deported within, within two weeks. I was successful. I, uh, the judge was a preppy in a polo T-shirt who admired my British accent. But for years after, every visit to, uh, on every visit to the United States, the red stamp marked me out as a heretic. Now I've got a clean passport. I've been rectified, as Proudhon would put it. I behave like a docile, obedient subject. But once I've crossed the border, my face turns into the emoticon for I feel like a lamppost that's just been urinated on. I suppose the emoticon culture gets what it deserves. An emotional economy generated by computer modelling and regulated by algorithms that translates the subjected self into objective data. It's nonsense, of course. No algorithm can break open the encryptions and fantasies of the inner self any more than the professors of the Academy of Laputa in Gulliver's Travels could extract sunbeams from cucumbers. It's the quantifying spirit of the Enlightenment gone mad, or madder, given that Swift thought it was pretty nuts at the time, where the obsession with collecting, listing, measuring and categorising everything drives us into the expectation that by so doing we can solve a mystery. In John Updike's novel, Roger's Version, a graduate student tries to convince his professor that he can prove the existence of God using a complex procedure in computer graphics. Updike uses this plotline to stage a theological debate in which the student's attempt to beat a path to God is viewed as an act of profanity. The debate is heavily influenced by the work of Swiss theologian Karl Barth, who insisted there is no way which leads to this event of revelation because there is no faculty in man for apprehending it. That's the whole point of having a God, Barth was saying. Yet our arrogance demands that in addition to everything else, some superworld should also be known and accessible to us. But the politics of scrutiny will not suffer the crick that can't be cracked. Total knowability is the objective. And, say its high priests, we have the technology to achieve it. This is not a conspiracy. And if it were, uh, it would involve Facebook, Google as much, if not more, than the state. I think it's more a trajectory, and its gravitational pull is apparently irresistible for all of us. And who knows, perhaps the superworld can be reached. Sometimes a destination exists simply because enough people believe it does. Take, for example, the European Agency for the Management of External Border Controls, known as Frontex, and its vast surveillance system, Eurosure. Their joint operations across the entire European common border and beyond are supported by what Frontex is touting as the system of systems, I quote, a network of technologies that, when fully amalgamated, will deliver, quote, the frictionless circulation of identity data within a single globalised market of information. In other words, a superworld. Let's call it the technicum where the whole order of society and its component parts, us, is revealed. And not just as it is today, but as it will be tomorrow, because the key mission of the system of systems is predicting the future. It works like this. National coordination centres in the EU member states pump intelligence and biometric data into Frontex's situation centre, 
where algorithms sweat day and night to identify patterns and trends so that, quote, a continuum of security threats can be pursued and anticipated through digital traces and their perpetual recombination. The idea is that the risk-based calculations provided by the algorithms allow Frontex to monitor and react to the future, to which end a report commissioned by the agency recommends that border guards be trained in future thinking. The report also quotes the dead management guru, Peter Drucker, I say dead because of the quote that's coming, who said that the best way to predict the future is to create it. Well, Frontex has had a decade of crystal ball gazing since it was set up in 2004. And unless I've missed the press release, it didn't predict that in 2015 alone, over one million unauthorised migrants would gain the European border with the unintended consequence that the Schengen Treaty now looks as small as the town in Luxembourg where it was signed. This is what hypervisibility failed to see. No worries. Frontex has just been awarded a 54% budget increase by the European Commission, which should pay for a few tinkerings with the software. And there's hardware to be maintained too. Unmanned drones, coastal radars, thermal and infrared sensors, surveillance cameras, also known as game cameras, snare nets, pepper spray and a whole lot of steel fences, razor wire, spotlights, and weaponized watchtowers. We don't experience any of this because we're first-class citizens and we don't travel in inflatable toy boats. But in case we're in any doubt, this is what it looks like, a war on immigration. Or more specifically, a war on the global wanderings of the unverified self. Perhaps I should have mentioned already that the system of systems is a military term that embraces the doctrine of total interoperability and full-spectrum dominance, whereby warfare becomes a permanent boundless exercise against a wide range of non-state adversaries. So not the Thirty Years' War or the Hundred Years' War, but the forever and everywhere war. War itself as a kind of superworld. When I look at images of the militarised European border at, say, Melilla or Sueta, places I hope never to find myself in, all I see are the technologies of a medieval siege repurposed for the technicum. This medieval modernism is born of a fatal resolve to keep the outsider out, to separate the verified from the unverified. But because it requires the systematic enactment of suspicion, it's also a demonstration of the weakness of the strong. You can't win security if you don't know what it looks like. Every Maginot line, sooner or later, becomes an Imaginot line. On the 8th of July, 2013, the newly elected Pope Francis, on his first official trip outside Rome, arrived by boat at the island of Lampedusa, to commemorate the thousands of migrants who have died in the crossings from North Africa. After casting a wreath into the water, he celebrated mass on the sports field that doubles as a migrant reception centre. He delivered his homily from an altar constructed out of an old fishing boat. Where is your brother, he asked. Who is responsible for this blood? In Spanish literature, we have a comedy of Lope de Vega, which tells how the people of the town of Fuente Ovejuna kill their governor because he is a tyrant. They do it in such a way that no one knows who the actual killer is. So when the royal judge asks, who killed the governor? 
they all reply, Fuente Ovejuna, sir. Everybody and nobody. Today, too, the Pope continued, the question has to be asked. Who is responsible for the blood of these brothers and sisters of ours? Nobody. The globalization of indifference makes us all unnamed, responsible, yet nameless and faceless. The faceless unnamed. Not the anonymous clump of one million migrants, but us. We, who are verified down to our eyeballs, yet unseeing and unseeable behind the high wall we have built to protect ourselves from the disordered, unauthorised, unregistered others beyond. Is this the truth of the verified self, that it's several degrees out of true? Is this what the system of systems delivers, something so perfect that no one will need to be good? If so, then it places us, as well as those we exclude, in jeopardy. It brings us no nearer to God or the superworld or whatever you want to call it. Because as T.S. Eliot warned, it mistakes information for knowledge and knowledge for wisdom. All migrants know that the reply to the question, who on earth are you, is another question. Where on earth are you? And so they want what we've got, a verified self that will transport them over to our side of history. Thus, the migrant identity becomes a burden to be unloaded. Migrants often make the journey without identity documents, and I mentioned one reason for this earlier, namely that the attempt to obtain them in the country of origin can be very dangerous. Others lose them at the outset when they're robbed of everything by police or border guards or by people traffickers en route. But many destroy them deliberately because they fear, not without reason, that our system of verification will be a mechanism for sending them back. In Algeria, they're called haraga, Arabic, for those who burn. And they don't only burn their documents. Many burn their fingertips with hobs or lighters or mutilate them with razors or acid to avoid biometric capture and the prospect of expulsion. These are the weapons of the weak. Lampedusa, October 2013, barely three months after the Pope's visit, the boat carrying more than 500 Eritreans and Somalis sank a few hundred yards from shore. Whether they had lost their identity papers or destroyed them, when facing death, the people on board wanted to be known. As the boat listed and took on water, and with most of the women and children stuck below deck, those who knew they wouldn't make it called out their names and the names of their villages so that survivors might carry ashore news of their death. There isn't really any other way. There's no formal identification procedure for those who drown. In Lampedusa's cemetery, the many plaques that read unidentified migrant merely tell us that people have been dying in the Mediterranean for at least 25 years, more than 20,000 of them, according to current estimates. So everyone must be counted, but only if they count. Dead migrants don't count. The woman who drowned while giving birth was not a biometric subject. She was a biodegradable one. I don't want to reconstitute her as a sentimental artefact, an object to be smuggled into the already crowded room of my bad conscience. But I do want her to be known by more than just the number she was given after being hauled out of the water, 288, and 289 for her baby. Because otherwise the story of migrants remains infinitely reproducible to the point of abstraction. For the past two years, I searched for something by which to identify her. 
had all but given up when literally just a few days ago I stumbled across an article by a journalist who had visited Lampedusa after the tragedy. He found a survivor who turned out to be the woman's partner and the father of her baby. Her name, this man said, was Joanna. In Eritrean, it means congratulations. Thanks for listening. For our best subscription offers, visit lrb.me forward slash pod.